0: I moved to the Netherlands in 2016 and one of the first things I did, uh, as I always do when I move to a new country, was to look at the supermarkets. In the aisles, alongside the houder and the mustard, which I might expect in a Dutch supermarket, I was fascinated and intrigued to see a whole array of spice mixes I hadn't encountered before. Spices for kip sauté, beef rendang and kropok, or porn crackers. So instead of Doritos and cheesy onion rings or American treats like that, I've now got used to picking up prawn crackers for the kids to take home at
1: night. Yeah, they're, they're lovely, but thing is I can't eat a prawn cracker without thinking of the Dutch spice trade, uh, which uh, we know from textbooks may have been entrepreneurial and lucrative, uh, but which was of course also pretty murderous. It wasn't just trade, it was colonialism. It was a system. And that's the history that brought those spices and flavors of those palm crackers uh, to the Netherlands.
0: Yeah, although that history doesn't seem to be spoken about when we eat the food, even though some years ago, UNESCO recognized the rijstafel, the rice table with its accompanying Indo-Dutch dishes, as a part of the intangible cultural heritage of the Netherlands. So what's the backstory here? Why is this food so ubiquitous now? And why is its colonial origins so hidden?
1: Those are the questions central in our first episode of the Unsettling Knowledge podcast. And we, that is Rachel and Matthijs, both from Utrecht University, our aim in this podcast is to uncover and retrace the colonial histories that hide behind many everyday things, such as food.
0: To that end, we invited two members of the Indo-Dutch community to tell us more. Jeff Keesbury is an American author with Indo-Dutch roots, an entrepreneur, heir to his Indo-Dutch restaurateur grandmother and the author of the first English-language Indo-Dutch heritage cookbooks. His mission specifically is to preserve and honor the story of the Indo-Dutch community through those classic recipes.
1: And then we have Josina Hillsland, and she's a second-generation Indo-Dutch early childhood educator and Just like Jeff, she's a proud member of the Indo-Project. That's the organization that carries out that mission to preserve Indo-Dutch heritage. They do so specifically online, in English. They digitalize interviews, organize public events, etc. And we asked them what they thought of a new magazine that's been published. It's called Pinda, which is a derogatory name, uh, and which is meant to do the exact same thing.
2: Well... Dutch Indos were called pinda, peanuts, because, of course, peanuts is a very large ingredient of the Indo-Dutch kitchen, but the first people that sold peanuts in the Netherlands were the Chinese guys in the harbors in Amsterdam. They were walking along the boats, calling out, peanut, 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 and you could buy a little bag of peanuts. Then when the Dutch Indo came, of course, they looked a little bit similar to the Chinese who were already for a hundred years in the Netherlands. So people started to call them peanut too. Some people think it's not good to be called peanut, but I personally think it's very funny. Also because I absolutely do love peanuts and a good satay sauce. And, and Jeff, Do you agree, Jeff? Yeah. yeah, peanuts or pinda is
3: an essential ingredient to a lot of dishes. I love peanuts. And yeah, it's been used as uh, like ethnic slur. You know, that was how it was meant. But we reclaimed it as being, well, what you could say the N-word for the Indo community. We call each other either Indo or peanut or pinda. And so we reclaimed it in, in such a fashion that at least we, when we see somebody, oh, you're a peanut, yes. Meaning we share the similar heritage.
0: So actually... If I use it, it's not okay, but if you guys use it, it's natural, and it's fine, and it's almost affectionate. Is that true as Close, well? Close,
3: but I think we we are tolerant enough for you to say it if you mean it in a nice way.
0: Yes, we call each
2: other very often with food names. You say, hey, little peanuts, or little kachang, or hey, krupuki. So food is so important to us that if you li- like or love someone, you call him a e food.
1: I'm, I'm not mistaken. There, there is also debate on this. No? There, there are fourth generation Indo-Dutch people who say perhaps not the best choice to call the magazine like that. <laughs> That's right. It's, uh, some see it still as a derogatory term to be looked down on
3: by uh, using a nickname like that. It's, it's not a compliment to some. It all depends on how you look at it. So therefore it's quite controversial, and that's why they chose that name peanut, because it gets people talking. Why peanut? people ask questions, so which is good, because then it gets people more interested in about why, and they read really yeah, A conversation starter. Yeah? Like, yeah. like
1: real foods.
2: Yeah? Yes, yes. And also, I like very much that peanut in Indo is kachang, and potato, which is the food of the Netherlands, is kechang. So kachang in Kichang or almost next to each other.
0: So I I really do like pinda. It's a beautiful magazine as well. This is one of the interesting things. It's glossy indeed. It's very glossy. Yes,
2: and it's only going to be once, sadly.
0: Maybe if it's successful, they'll do more. But I noticed the first four things, and this ties in with what you were saying about food. We call each other food. And the first four things, it said these are things every Dutch Indo or Dutch Indonesian person knows. Pinda... Oh, no, I'm going to butcher this. Chobek. Yes. Yeah, yes. Uh, spekuk there you <laughs> <go>. <laughs> and a bottle chobeck.
3: It's, it's <laughs> not for drinking in the restaurant. No,
2: no, 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 <laughs> no. Don't drink from <laughs> the bottle chobeck. Can you explain
3: what it is? <laughs> yeah. The, well, the Indo Dutch people would. Uh, that's something they inherited from the the times that they were in the former Dutch East Indies. They were very hygienic. Rather than just using toilet paper, they would also use water to. Uh, to be more clean than, than usual. I mean, just picture yourself putting your hands in a bucket full of mud and try to wipe it off with a napkin. There's still going to be residue, and a lot of people don't understand it. But, you know, in France, they have the bidet. So it's a very hygienic way of, you know, that's all I, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and know, we, we see the other uh, on the other side of the
2: this piece. is for graining spices and herbs. Yeah, a mortar.
3: Yes. Now, often used to make sambal, grinding the, yes. uh, the red peppers chili peppers and then the spekkoek of course that's uh, in my view a great representation of the layered culture we come from you know it's the brown and the white coming together in one so it's a cake. metaphor for it's the entire cuisine for the yes. entire cuisine but also yes. the community yes. it's not only a fusion yes. cuisine but it's also a hybrid yes. community
2: the dutch speculaas is from spekkoek speculaas, spekkoek it's almost the same spices
0: so again, you see that mixing, that layering, that kind of exchange actually and intermixture, but it's such a beautiful metaphor, Jeff. The layers are separate there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but is that also of, a metaphor? Yeah.
3: It's also a metaphor and it comes together, so it's my favorite cake. Period. I can eat it layer by layer. And some people just take the whole thing and bite in it. Like my cousin once said, I cooked for three hours, and that's why it's such a precious cake. Only served at special occasions, usually during the holidays. Now you can get it throughout the year. But, you know, my neighbor ate it like in three
1: bites. I'm never going to make it again.
3: So, but, you know, that's there's a lot of love involved in making
1: that cake. Now, a practical question, but one that's probably every fusion cuisine has to deal with. How to translate it? You're living in Los Angeles? Yeah. Do you say spekkoek? Well,
3: I say spekkoek, and then I explain right after. It's a thousand-layer spice cake. And it's got all these spices in there that started out with the spice trade, you know, the nutmeg, the mon the I mean, cinnamon. You know,
2: cinnamon,
0: Are you allowed to tell us all of them? Or no, you have to buy trade? my book.
1: <laughs> 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 now we're talking about language. Other translation issue. How, for instance, Indies, the Dutch, Dutch Indo, word. Dutch Indo. Dutch Indo. Indo. Yeah.
3: I say Mm Indo-Dutch because if you um, look at the American English language, if you are of Italian heritage, they say, I'm Italian-American. Now, the Italian is the cultural heritage and the American is the nationality. So you often hear Dutch-Indonesians That would explain that I'm Dutch, but of Indonesian nationality, and we were never Indonesian. So even though in the English language there's only Dutch-Indonesian, I'm a proponent of using the term Indo-Dutch. And Indo comes from Indo-European, which is the mixed heritage, and Dutch is the nationality. They were always Dutch, most of them. That's how we ended up in Holland, for instance.
0: That's actually a really elegant explanation. I struggle with that, because... Josina is a personal friend and you use Dutch Indo a lot with us. And then I said it, I think, one day in class and I saw a few raised eyebrows. Or maybe it was to you, Matthijs. And you said, oh, I'm not sure you would use that term, Rachel. And so Indo-Dutch, Dutch Dutch Indo. Well, in, in the Netherlands,
2: you say Indies or just Indo. But we had to translate it to English and Somehow, I think Charlie Robinson, who wrote a lot of books in English, when he went to America, he started the term Dutch-Indo. Nowadays, I think Jeff is right, Indo-Dutch is better. But Charlie Robinson did not know that at the time.
0: (laughs) I want to pick up on something you said about potato and rice, because I obviously am new to this, and I was reading Matthijs' article And he talked about the fact that the Dutch always saw the potato as something they really needed to have. Mm -hmm. And then you you wrote in your article, Matthijs, that the Indo-Dutch community was encouraged to eat potatoes instead of rice when they first arrived. I wondered if that's a family memory or if you remember eating rice instead of potato or any conflict or tension over that in terms of becoming Dutch or Indo.
3: Just to understand your question better, by... Coming back to the Netherlands or when they first arrived in the Dutch. Yeah, East when India?
0: they first arrived, I Here. read that, that yeah in Netherlands.
2: Here in the, Netherlands.
0: Here yeah. In the yeah. Netherlands. Yeah, they had nothing
2: to say. They just had to eat what they were served in the pensionates that came in from the boat got divided everywhere in the Netherlands, were just stuffed into pensionates who were empty at the moment. The people who owned the pension were paid by the government. With that money, they bought food for the people there, and they bought as cheap as possible food. That was potato and endive. That was it. And then when they went away to their own houses, they had to pay back everything to the government. And only then they could start to eat rice again and maybe they were lucky.
1: Before they also did This is one of those interesting things if you dive into the research that in those pensions they were not allowed to cook usually is what I read. But but they did. That's that's what those social workers all reported. They all cook secretly
3: some little rice on the side. Affordable gas burners. Especially
2: in the night you can't go to sleep on an empty stomach.
3: It's basically comfort food which unites the community. So it's in pursuit of the taste of home and if and sometimes there's only potatoes, that's what you eat, but they would make their own food.
2: Yes, they would add sambal to everything. A lot of onions, garlic. Because when they arrived in the Netherlands, of course, there was already a lot of Indo spices and herbs available in the Netherlands because all the KNIL soldiers, they were traveling forward and backwards as they had to and bringing all these things with them. So it was here. It was just very expensive.
0: Because you both talk about it as comfort. And then even before we started recording, you know, you're talking about food is 88% of the Indo-Dutch identity. So I know, Jeff, you were just at a very important birthday party. So how does that manifest practically? Like, how does that appear on the table? How is your community seen on the table?
3: It's always been about food. And that's how I was raised. I mean, people's happiness... To me, looked like it also depended upon food, connecting people, and there's always food. So whenever you would uh, come by a friend or family member, unannounced, the first question they would ask, have you eaten? That's the Asian way of saying, feel welcome, sit down and relax and pull up a chair and grab a plate and eat. And then we'll talk. Eat first, talk later. In terms of parties, there's always a buffet. Sometimes it's a potluck party where everybody brings a signature disc and contributes to the feast table. And in case of my mother's birthday, she
1: arranged for a rice of buffet, so it was great. I was wondering, because if it's comfort food and people have signature dishes, in the magazine, there's only some recipes in the very back of it. Which ones would you put in there? You
0: should be in the magazine, I was about to ask, Jeff. is he a rival of yours? Or how
1: this, I mean, it doesn't sound like a place where there's rivalry in the kitchen. Well, the is thing there? is,
3: within the Indo community, there is rivalry because people say that uh, my grandmother or mom made it better than this, and uh, there is salt lacking in this. And so they, they look down on somebody else's food, and which is kind of sad because we're trying to uplift each other and keep this culinary heritage alive, and you don't do that by just looking down on somebody else's food. But this is how it is. My grandmother always said, "Taste differ. You can talk about it. You don't want to argue about it, but you can talk about it. And that's how it is. Smake of a skill.
2: Especially for rendang. Rendang is the most bespoken dish in the Dutch Indo kitchen. Everyone has just a little difference. And, and everyone, rendang, is, rendang is? Rendang is a, a stew from... Ladang,
3: uh, Sumatra. Yes. It's a stew in coconut milk. It has to to simmer for about six hours to get the real dry rendang. So it's also the most popular in Southeast Asia, also in countries like Singapore, Malaysia, who have that similar. But it all came from Sumatra Island, Minangkabau community.
0: So everybody know. has their own <laughs> twist on it. Well, the yes. thing
3: is also, people from the Dutch East Indies who came to Holland, they come from different islands and regions. You have more than 6,000 inhabited islands and more than 300 ethnic groups. So depending on where the family would come from, that's the the taste they grew up with, the cooking style. And then, of course, if you come from a mixed heritage family, there are some European influences in there. And then, of course, there is the, the Indies or the Indo-Dutch cuisine versus the Indonesian, which is all in- uncompassing, but the Indo-Dutch cuisine is part of that, and it's now part of the diaspora called the Indo-Dutch diaspora.
0: Yeah, do you have a special twist on your rendang, your Zina, or <laughs> I asked you to think of a recipe that kind of... Symbolize this for you? The community, the Indo-Dutch identity. What would you put on the rice tafel? Oh, I would put rice. And I do love sambal growing
2: bunjes. And then you can add to the bunjes beans, green beans. It's a beans with a lot of spices. And you can just add hard-boiled eggs to it or shrimps. I love that very much. And then I make a dadar, that's an omelette, to go with it. So that's what I make most. And I do really love pisang goreng, that's baked banana, but I can't make it at home. <laughs> so I always eat a lot of it on the Tongtong tong fair. So
1: Jeff, I just heard you say something about the differences between Indonesian and Indo-Dutch. And I heard you say something on that on the radio once. This difference is, say, not always respected in restaurants today or not everyone thinks it's that important, that distinction. Anymore. How? Well,
3: well, it's not recognized as such. It's all Indonesian. It's, it's Indonesian
1: cuisine. And then recognized by the Dutch public or by the Indo-Dutch community.
3: Well, they also use the term. You know, just to give you an example, when my grandmother started out here in Amsterdam, when she came from the Dutch East Indies, she started a, f- a restaurant after she had a fashion boutique for four years. And she called it Indo-European. Because that's their heritage, a mix of East and West all coming together. And then the cuisine was a combination of all the best of two worlds. There were these Chinese Indies restaurants. They wanted to capitalize on the influx of people from Southeast Asia who wanted rice and and all that. So they thought, hey, there's people wanting their comfort food. We're going to serve that also. And this is where Chinese Indies became more Indies for the general audience. And so... My grandmother said, okay, I have to distinguish myself, so I'm going to call it Indonesian authentic, because that's the real food that came from there, whereas Chinese Indies was something local. For instance, the difference between the way they would make satay instead of roasting it on an open fire, on charcoal, they would deep fry it. And there's the little differences. And they would use less spices to make it more, you know, lower the threshold for the for the Dutch who didn't care much for all these spices that could be very dominating. And garlic, less garlic, and trasi, you know, the fermented shrimp paste that smells very bad, but it is very vital that it goes into especially Japanese dishes where we're from. So yeah, there is a difference. Also, there is a home cuisine. that's are a lot of dishes uh, that I have in my book, for instance, and, and that's why I wrote it, to preserve that part. The, the dishes that we grew up with, that grandmother and mother cooked, and cannot be found in any restaurant anymore. So that's something that needs to be preserved, so that when we cook it, we can tell the stories behind it, and it triggers memories of the good old days in the tropics, and why we cook it the way we cook it. And it, it's also a conversation story
0: yeah the good old days yeah the stories like what are they and do you tell them when you sit around the table
2: oh yes sure i'm, I'm very pleased that my daughter is very Dutch in the minded she visits me everywhere so i think for her as third generation the future of my family is safe and she really feels like a Dutch Indo girl. She wants to know how to cook. She goes with me to Tong Tong Fairs. And August 15, we placed together a wreath for the Indo project at the build, at the commemoration of the end of the Japanese war in the Dutch Indies. So we talk about a lot. And that's the way that you preserve your past talking about it, sharing it, spreading it, learning from it, and then grow into the future, because everything changes. But you need your past to learn where your roots
0: are. So what's one of the stories you might share with Robin, your daughter?
2: Oh, well, there are a lot of stories of my crazy dad and his crazy friends. (laughs) They were a very big group of little schoolboys who terrorized the whole city of Bandung, And then when they had to leave the Dutch Indies, they lost touch, of course. And then when they were in the Netherlands, they all found each other again. And now when they go up to heaven, the ones that are left are still there, are still in touch with the children so we hear a lot of stories about Bandung, of course, also about the war and everything that they've been through. And I know the stories about my grandma who had six children and had all her children through the war while my my granddad was in Burma. He was a Japanese prisoner working in Burma at the railroads but he survived. So these are all stories that you just keep on telling because they are very important and they are not in the Dutch history books.
0: And that's very painful. Do you have stories like that, Jeff?
3: Well, there there are a lot of stories like that in the family. Everybody has them. Not everybody likes to talk about it. Uh, but what we see also within the Indo Project is, uh, since we encourage people to share their stories, that more and more people are willing to share it. And so we, we collect them, we digitize them for future generations as a reference. It's so important to get these stories told. And people are more open to them because they, you know, this is what, what happened a lot when they came to uh, this wonderful country. They were so grateful that they wanted to leave all the bad stuff behind and just focus on becoming a productive citizen of the Netherlands, and then they would shut up. But it's good to know because the younger generations, third, especially third generation and younger, are starting to ask questions. And with these first generations after the immigration start to disappear... There's nobody left to ask these questions. All of a sudden, at a later age, they become more interested in their indo identity. I call it, the Indo-within. And like, oh, what happened here? What happened there? So uh, it's good to see from where I'm at that a lot is happening in that field in the Dutch language, which is great. And we took it upon ourselves to tell the story as much as we can in English, especially when the questions are asked in, in the US, for instance. Yeah.
1: There's this historian in the Netherlands, Lizzie van Leeuwen. She wrote that perhaps heritage cuisine or the Tong Tong fair at large, all those cultural productions that they can also stand in the way of having those stories being told to a larger audience or to sort of Dutch public memory do you recognize any of this is food like does it stand in the way of having those stories heard or does it help bring them about
3: in my view it helps I I use it as a conduit to make it
0: for our listeners here, you should just see these faces. Like, I am looking at two absolutely astonished faces. So I'm loving this response to the yeah, question because, you know, clearly it doesn't resonate for you, actually. you not, don't think... not for
1: us, but do you know what her
3: reason is? Why it stands in the
1: way? How so? That's what she theorizes. She says, okay, there is unwillingness in the larger Dutch public to acknowledge the colonial past, the way Indo-Dutch people were treated pretty badly when they arrived here what we discussed before. And she says it's sort of yeah, like an opium. You consume the Indo-Dutch food as a Dutch person and you think everything is fine. while well, in fact, there's many stories that should be exchanged.
3: It all depends on how you entertain. And I use it when I cook and people start asking me questions. I say, well, this is where we find comfort from all the bad things that also happen to the community. And that's how we slowly say, so, you know, so life, way it's the entry point, Yeah, so. I think it gets people at the table, it unifies and it gets people talking, especially when they're interested in this unique cuisine. Because if you say it's Indonesian, no, it's more than
2: that. Yes. And and if you are at the tong tong Fair, it's really... Dutch Indo community with all colors of people and everything is polite and everything is great and it's just a celebration for everyone and there are a lot of people probably who have no Dutch Indo inheritance like my daughter's boyfriend he's as white as my grandfather was but he's very very into Dutch Indo community so it spreads And there are about 2 million Dutch Indo people in the world. That's a lot. But a whole lot, third or fourth generation, don't know it anymore. Not
1: all of them live in the Netherlands,
3: right? No. I I said diaspora. So Mm -hmm. the Netherlands was the first for many. And then some people immigrated through to the US because they couldn't settle down here. It was too cold or they didn't feel appreciated. That's another reason for leaving, especially uh, when you consider that post-World War II Holland was rebuilding and all of a sudden these people from the Southeast Asia come... 13th province in the tropics what are you doing here because we have to rebuild so yeah, you mentioned also not wanting to talk about the colonial history and I sometimes say some people regard this uh, as the black page in our history books we don't want to become a footnote in the history books so that's why the Indo Projects for instance exist to make sure that people know the story behind it and that it's not all lumped together with Indonesian history or Dutch but that people recognize and acknowledge that there is a hybrid community there is a fusion cuisine for instance the rice you know, when you talk about. Uh,
1: also, one of those untranslated words.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah and you're laughing, Yerzina. <laughs> like, why? Yeah,
2: well, the rice is not something in the Dutch Indies you would eat every day. It's like a celebration meal, Islamatan. But when they were in the Netherlands, and of course, if you have visitors in the Dutch Indies, you make a rice So, if people came to the restaurants, they got served a rice tafel. But that's only a meal for a celebration when you are in normal life you have just one vegetable one meat and rice or vegetable with meat or eggs inside
0: and rice like thinking all americans have turkey and apple pie and ice cream and all the trimmings for dinner every day (laughs)
3: Funny you mention that. It's actually a type of Thanksgiving meal, basically. Yes. The Indo community doesn't make a rice novel every day. It is for special occasions, and that's how it came to be. A traditional and elaborate meal to also impress guests, especially uh, among the colonials. But it's now part of the National Inventory of Cultural Heritage in the Netherlands since December 1st, 2015. So, Dutch heritage. UNESCO approved.
2: Yeah. Yes, yes. Absolutely.
3: Which is very important because the way I see it is that Rastafel has always been the foremost culinary ambassador for Indonesia. So in a way, we have contributed to uh, putting Indonesian culinary on the map worldwide, and that should be acknowledged. And that's my mission through the books and whatever we do at the Indo Project. I do
0: the culinary bit. Any final contribution you'd want to make? I see you clutching this beautiful, slightly faded cover and a handwritten label on the front. Josina, it's a book that's been passed through your family. It looks amazingly special. Then yes. When...
2: Uh Things got worse in Indonesia after it became independent, so it was not the Dutch Indies anymore. My grandmother had this—that's de- early fifties. That's fifties, right? yes. My grandmother had decided to stay in Indonesia because she had no family in the Netherlands and her husband from Amsterdam had died. So she said, "I'm going to stay here with my two youngest children, and they can go to the Netherlands when I pass away." But things became worse and worse, and somehow a military man said, this house and everything in it is mine from now. And he came in every day to check up on his possessions. And then the cookie of my grandma was very, very concerned about my grandma, and he wrote down the... Recipes for my grandma, he always cooked for her. So if she had to leave suddenly, then she could take this with her and cook these meals in the Netherlands. And it happened that my youngest aunt was threatened by the police and the military in the evening. And in the morning, they had to take the boat to the Netherlands. And they only could take, of course, one suitcase each. That was the rule, one suitcase. And the only thing they were allowed to give away was the dog. And the rest, they just had to close the door and leave everything open because they knew the military man would come in and live there with everything what was theirs. And my grandma took this notebook with her and she had my aunt cook out of it because my grandmother was a nonna, my niece, she did not cook herself. She had her cookie for her. And when the cook was not there anymore, she had my arm to do it. And when she passed away, I inherited this notebook from her. But do you cook from it? Of yeah. course I do. That's what we all want to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, cook, I do. not just look. I no, I cook. I can cook all of this. Okay. Yes, so I'm
3: inviting myself.
2: Yes, of <laughs> course. And I think it's very good because handwriting is really from early on nice
3: cursive,
2: yeah. and well it's very nice to read it and it's sometimes it's a little Indonesian in between the Dutch but of course I can understand it and I'm very very pleased that I still have this
0: well I also feel like inviting you to my house for a Reichstafel and maybe you could give uh, Jeff some of your precious recipes for his next uh, cookbook <laughs>
1: He just has one out, right? So you're probably on the beginning of something new right now. You just
0: have published a cookbook. So collecting recipes for the next, or are you going to take a break for a while?
3: No, no, no. I'm working on my second English language book. So for the English listeners, there's the Indo-Dutch Kitchen Secrets book. It's the first heritage cookbook in the English language,
1: which also explains the history and the customs around the food. Here, people don't know much, but at least something about Indo-Dutch history. In LA, that must be different.
3: Well, within the community, there's more interest in the Indo background, identity, and heritage. And we are really eager to tell the story. So whenever I get to uh, be invited for a lecture on my book, I also tell a little bit of the story. And then they say, oh, I never knew that. I thought it was all Indonesian. And what about the Dutch connection? I didn't understand that. So when we do Holland Festival for over 35 years now, we have a lot of Indonesian food vendors. And what are the Indonesians doing at the Dutch Holland Festival?
1: Then we explain the colonial heritage. Just a last question, like your grandmother did, would you still call a restaurant in the Netherlands an Indonesian restaurant if it was yours?
3: If I would open up a restaurant, mm-hmm. I would call it the Indo-Dutch. That makes it exclusive because everybody else is all Indonesian and I'd like to emphasize the niche cuisine
1: that I would be featuring. This is a prediction also that most restaurants now turning to Indonesian, that the new thing to set yourself apart would be going back to the moniker Indo-Dutch.
3: Yeah, well, it's, it's also a little bit sensitive just to understand what happens if you go to Indonesia and people come back to me. Oh, I was looking for a Reistafel, I couldn't find it. And that was only in some hotels and a restaurant here and there. But uh, there was a phase right after the independence that the staff was seen as a symbol of imperialism and needed to be phased out. And uh, so this is Dutch, so we don't want
1: it. I once was in an Indonesian restaurant in Berlin, so people, not from the Netherlands. There was no rice table indeed. meal. So anyway,
0: no. You're laughing. <laughs> yes,
2: because, yeah, rice tafel is not common for Indonesian cuisine.
3: They would call it different, like you said, slamata. Yes, yeah, slamata.
2: A celebratory meal. Yes. And then you have the nasi kuning, the yellow rice in a, in a cone. cone. And that's the real golden rice for your guests to wish them all the luck
0: you can. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have a cone of yellow rice, but I know I've learned a lot. And actually, Yosina, you're passing on traditions not just to your family, but also to my children, too, as a neighbor. So my young daughter, Anais, now says, yes. And it is her favorite meal. And my other daughter wanted to ask, How do you get the spicy in the food? I don't like it myself, but I'd like to cook it for people who do. And so I think at least in one family here in the Netherlands you are succeeding in passing on this rich, maybe bittersweet, spicy, Indo-Dutch history. And I thank you very much for coming in and sharing it with us today. Yes, you're welcome. Yes, Thanks thank for inviting you. Us. We'd like to thank Jeff and Josina once again for shedding light on all of this, showing us how the rice table is a symbol of colonial times but also very much the food of a vibrant Indo-Dutch diaspora.
1: Indeed. So join us next time on the Unsettling Knowledge podcast for episodes on street names, on football, on museums and much more.